You're listening to a 95 BFM podcast. You're tuned into The Wire. One hour of current affairs and analysis starting now. Kia ora and welcome to The Wire for Rapare Thursday. I'm your host Spike and I'll be joined, I'm joined by producer Simon and we'll be with you for the next hour. Ifai Akine coming up on the show. I spoke to Andrew Little about the high rates of defence force turnover and potential AUKUS involvement from New Zealand. And I also spoke to Scott Optikin about Trump's recent arrest and its potential impacts. What have you got for us today, Simon? Kia ora Spike. I spoke with City Councillor Shane Henderson about Auckland Light Rail, the proposed extra harbour bridge crossing and communities that are still recovering post-cyclone and Morgan Donoghue from Ours Not Mines on mining on conservation land. He aha whakaroa. I'd love to hear your thoughts on any of our pieces today, so get in touch. Tukupa tuhi mai, text in on 5395 or wire mai Give us a call in studio on 309 3879. You can catch all these stories and more by podcast on the 95BFM website, 95BFM.com. Now, let's get into the Thursday Wire. The government has indicated a progressive. Oh, wow. The Wire. Now it's time for our weekly chat with Labour MP Andrew Little. This week, I spoke to MP Little about the current rates of attrition in the Defence Force, where 30% of staff have left over the past two years, and personnel getting $10,000 payments to incentivise them to stay, and the government's recent indication of openness to joining the AUKUS Alliance. I started off by asking Andrew uh, what the causes for this high level of defence turnover are. Um, There's a number of things. I think uh, following the the two years of our Defence Forces looking after the MIQ facilities where they lost the opportunity for training and and, um, updating their skills, a lot of of the personnel kind of um, decided that the Defence Force was no longer for them, so they left. I think uh, a huge factor, however, is the more competitive wages and incomes available in the private sector and um, many of those who have left have left in order to to improve their incomes by just uh, changing jobs. Um, so while it's um, it's serious, um, there are a number of uh, actions that the NZDF are taking to uh, address the situation, and I'm confident that that's starting to reduce the level of attrition, but we still have a way to go yet. What kind of private sector roles are people leaving for? Where are people going? Yeah, there's two things I think you've touched on. Trade. So those who have got um, uh, trade skills, obviously in hot demand, uh, whether in construction, elsewhere in engineering uh, or civil engineering. Um, uh, and the other area is because of the nature of the training, particularly the leadership training that Defence Force personnel get, they often go into middle and senior management roles in organisations. Um, Defence Force personnel do come very well equipped um, with with management skills. They're used to organising people, organising logistics. They are used to planning and they're used to to leading. So, um, yeah, they are a very attractive bunch of people, um, particularly after, you know, anywhere between kind of seven and 12 years service in the forces. They are a very attractive proposition to private organisations who are looking for um, future senior managers or current senior managers and want to fill those gaps. Is this a pay issue? Is it? Are we not compensating our staff correctly? What are you currently doing to incentivise people to stay in the roles? Yeah, I think I think um, the fact that we know that for a large chunk of people they're going because they can get better pay outside of the, the services. Clearly pay is an issue and I'm conscious as, as Minister that um, that we do make sure that our levels of remuneration and our, and our armed services are, um, if not comparable, at least attractive to, to retain and attract people um, to that. Uh, one of the differences, for particularly for uniformed personnel, is that they don't have the same employment rights as people elsewhere. They're not allowed to belong to a union. They can't bargain collectively. In my view, that places a moral duty on myself as Minister and the Chief of Defence Force to make sure that um, our NZDF personnel are being paid fairly and reasonably. I'm not sure that is the case at the moment, but additional funding has been provided to NZDF to to top up pay, to make lump sum payments. But there's a there's an underlying issue that we are still yet to fully address, in my view. We've had to decommission aircraft. We can't properly staff ships. 
uh, that are currently sitting in Devonport and the Cyclone Gabriel response was affected by these low staff numbers. Will we see any further impacts? I would certainly hope not. I think it's it's less likely now than it might have been the, the case a few months ago. I think um, definitely there are um, naval vessels that are tied up at Devonport at the moment that um, uh, we can't deploy because we don't have the, the right range of personnel uh, to staff them, so that, is, that explains that. In terms of the aircraft, we retired the P3 Orions um, five months earlier than uh, we expected um, because we had to both, uh, or we would have had to staff them and staff the new Poseidon P8s, um, and we just didn't have the personnel to do that. That has meant we've, in terms of maritime surveillance, which is what the P3 Orions and the Poseidon P8s typically do, we've had to take uh, different approaches to that, so using the Hercules to do some of that. Um, but the, the P8 Poseidons are now uh, very much coming on stream, so the first of those will be fully operating by the first of May. So I think the DEV is doing the best they can to manage that, but you're right. I think even though the response to Cyclone Gabriel, it was very good. It was the, it was the biggest humanitarian assistance response we've had since the Christchurch earthquakes. Had we been called upon to another event, for example, a cyclone in the Pacific, we would have struggled to provide the level of response that we would we were typically expected to do. So it certainly is putting pressure on our ability to, to deploy in those sort of circumstances. I think moving on to AUKUS, um, our government has confirmed it is discussing joining the non-nuclear part of the AUKUS alliance. What could that membership mean for New Zealand? Yeah, I should, I should say that um, yeah, there's early discussions and in fact the government has yet to sort of make a, a final uh, decision where we will even commit to those sort of formal talks about it. But um, the, the, what, the, what is described as Pillar 2 of AUKUS, which is the, the stuff that is not associated with the, the nuclear-powered submarines, it deals with um, more te- the, the technology side of it, so um, AI, uh, quantum, quantum computing, um, the stuff that supports things like domain awareness, which is um, you know, radars and technology that means you, you, you know what's coming and you know where you are and those sorts of things. We do have some, we have in, uh, uh, part of our uh, industry um, has capability in those sorts of areas, so it would certainly be attractive. And in terms of a, a general contribution to um, to the capability of our services, obviously it would be an attractive thing to do. Um, I think you know the public debate um, properly puts this in the context of what uh, what underpins AUKUS, and it is about Australia um, bolstering its defences, if you like, in, in a much more competitive strategic environment in, in the Indo-Pacific. Um, we can't avoid that. We are part of that. We can't dictate what Australia does, or for that matter, the US and the UK, and they are long-standing traditional partners and allies of us. So it just simply means we we do have to make some decisions decisions about what we do, um, and you know uh, because these are countries that we've worked closely with before, um, it at least makes sense for us to consider whether or not there is uh, anything that we could usefully do that doesn't compromise our long-standing commitment to nuclear-free Pacific, um, and that's just the, that's the discussion that we have to have. That is in the context of supporting militarisation of the Pacific and supporting partners that are using nuclear submarines in the Pacific? Um, well, two things. I mean, in terms of militarisation, we know there are, there are some countries in, in this part of the world who have been considerably increasing their military um, spend and capability. So China, for example, has increased their military spending tenfold since 2000. They've significantly increased their, the size of their navy, the size of their army, um, and their air force. They've significantly increased their nuclear weaponry. Um, to the extent that Australia has made the judgment call that they need to bolster their defences, they've opted for nuclear propulsion, but they they're not opting for nuclear weaponry. Um, that said, you know, we already work alongside countries who are nuclear armed. So France um, has interests in the Pacific. We, we work with France in the Pacific. The vessels that they use down here aren't nuclear armed, um, and they're not nuclear propelled either, but France itself is a country that is nuclear armed. Britain is nuclear armed. We work with that. The US, obviously, nuclear armed, and we work with them. So it's a question about whether um, there is a, a basis on which we can um, have... 
military relationships with those countries and others for that matter. I mean, you look at Japan. Um, Japan that has constrained its defence spending since World War Two in the last um, two or three years has uh, increased significantly increased its military spend as well. Um, likewise, South Korea. They're all countries with whom we have close relationships, who with whom we would um, partner up, and um, and who we seek to strengthen relationships with as well. So it's about. Uh, seeing that whatever we do is in that, that broader international context. That was Labour MP Andrew Little. The Wire. For City Councilling this week, I spoke with Waitakere Councillor Shane Henderson about the recently announced Extra Harbour Crossing project, as well as light rail in Auckland. Shane also spoke about the bus driver shortage and how communities in the West are still in recovery mode post-cyclone. I started by asking Shane to discuss the varying states of recovery in these communities. Now, tell me about your father. City Councilling on 95BFM, our weekly chat with the good people of Auckland Council. You know, clean-up efforts are still ongoing in a lot of communities in Waitakere, um, but the particularly uh, acute impacts at the moment are in Pihar and Karikari, I'd say. Um, so in those communities, we're still saying, look, residents only, even at this stage. And this is a couple of months on, right? Um, but we're still saying residents only... Uh, at least until the Easter weekend, and we'll have a look at it through that time. Um, we're looking at geotech engineers and roading engineers to kind of see whether we should be encouraging large amounts of traffic back into those areas. Uh, and there's still some really extensive clean-up work all through the villages of Pihar and Karikari as well. So, yeah, at the moment we're saying, look, um, still residents only just for now, and we'll assess that really soon. Um, but yeah, all across uh, Waitakere, we've still got plenty of places where, you know, there's trees leaning on power lines and those kinds of things that are still ongoing efforts for us. And you've spoken about the roads and the need to assess those. What other infrastructure still needs to be looked at and fixed uh, in the community? Yeah, well, um, we're kind of lucky in terms of our water and our electricity and all those kinds of things. Um, so, you know, quite apart from the roads, the other thing is streams. So one of the big issues that we have is stream cleanups, where we've still got a lot of storm debris uh, down trees and things like that and a few streams. And, look, I just want to shout out at this point to West Auckland is Flooding, which is an advocacy group uh, that have been doing great work, uh, both in terms of policy lobbying but also just stream cleanups uh, and doing some great work there as well. So... We've got to clean these streams before, you know, who knows when the next storm may come. Uh, hopefully not anytime soon, but we need to be prepared. And along with, uh, with the streams and, and the clean-up, I suppose, more broadly, is it a, an option to future-proof this infrastructure, say, for the roads and, and bridges and stormwater drains for f- future events? Or is it just a, a matter of, at the moment, fixing it and making sure it all gets back to the level it was at previous uh, prior to the floods and the cyclone? Yes, kind of a bit of both, really, eh? Um, I'm trying to encourage us on what I call a dig-once approach. So we get in there and we not only uh, maintain it to the levels that it should be maintained, but we actually look at the catchment and we see how can we future-proof this for future storms. Uh, so an example, I've been doing some work uh, with the Donbach Bridge, which is at the bottom of Massey. Um, now, that uh, sort of had a lot of flooding uh, through there, which eventually washed out homes further on downstream. So kind of an area, for example, where we've got to look at it and we've got to say, look, how can we future-proof this to save people's homes downstream, to save people's communities? Um, so, you know, to, to answer your question, it's probably a bit of both, but there's really a time uh, sort of sensitive element to getting in there and getting it cleaned out. And speaking of infrastructure more broadly, there's the announcement of the new Harbour Bridge crossings uh, as well as Auckland Light Rail, which is planned to expand out west eventually. What are your views on these projects and what benefits will they have to the community in Waitakere? Yeah, so uh, looking at expanding light rail, looking at harbour crossings, um, I should point out to everybody it's a third harbour crossing because we've already got two. The Green Heights Bridge totally counts as a second one. Um, But yeah, look, from a West Auckland perspective, I think I would really encourage us to look at the Northwestern Corridor, where we've got huge amounts of growth. We've got 200,000 West Aucklanders with some fairly poor public transport service. So an interim busway is going in right now, uh, but it is very interim, and we want the sort of standard of service that the Northern Busway on the North Shore has. Uh, and to kind of future-proof it through to Kumiu and um, even potentially over the Upper Harbour Bridge at some point. 
So, yeah, my take on it is we should really be focusing on the State Highway 16 corridor as well as looking at harbour crossings. That's really important for my community. And alongside that, because we've also got the, the bus driver shortage issues, I know a lot of people in the community are probably seeing these announcements and seeing the start dates as being quite a way in the future. What needs to be done in the interim um, to help people's commute? Because I know a lot of people's buses are cancelled or they get stuck in traffic trying to get into the city. So alongside uh, expanding the sort of bus routes out there, what else could be done to help these people commuting around the city? Well, I mean, we do need more bus drivers. That's a crucial one for us. Uh, but at the same time, look, I think at a broader level, we've got to be treating this as a crisis that it is. We've got to be having really um, serious and urgent messaging out there for people to say, look, we're really on top of this and we're doing pulling every lever to try and get buses back on the road and stop these cancellations. You know, I've been told that in large part, uh, bus, bus sort of patronages down because people are working from home, to which I say there is a small element of that, sure. But I think my community cannot rely on bus services, and they feel like, look, I've got to get to work on time, and I don't know if I can trust my bus to show up. So this is a crisis, and we've got to pull every lever that we can to try and get buses back on the road. That was City Councillor Shane Henderson. Have you tried mindfulness? Try mindfulness. City Councilling on 95BFM. We'll be right back after a short break. Keep it on the B. What's a seven-letter word for Street Fighter? No idea. I know that tonight at Ponsonby Social Club there's... A live tribute to Ketranada, followed by Marjorie Sinclair until midnight. And tomorrow... DJ Kilimanjaro is on from midnight. Same old Ponsonby Social Club, 152 Ponsonby Road. Born from the beloved children's books by Rhonda and David Armitage, The Lighthouse Keeper's Lunch has been brought to life on stage. A treasure trove of high seas, high adventure and high jinks. Don't let this iconic Kiwi show escape your schedule. The Lighthouse Keeper's Lunch, adapted for the stage by Tim Bray and song by Christine White. On now till May 6th at three venues across Auckland in Takapuna, Manukau and Mangari. Tickets and more info at timbray.org.nz. Music's everywhere. It's like a cloud of art. Here at 95BFM, we've sucked up some of the best contemporary bangers, bottled them and chucked them into a special Spotify playlist just for you. Just for you. Is April's playlist featuring tracks from Riot Gull, Hybrid Rose, Sleaford Mods, Adam Tukity, and TG Shand. Follow 95BFM on Spotify for a monthly Spotify playlist and stay au fait.
The Wire. But there's some real fascists out here. Welcome back to The Wire. Donald Trump was arrested this Tuesday in Manhattan, making history as the first US president to ever be formally charged with a crime. I spoke to Scott Optican, Associate Law Professor at Auckland University, about the case against Trump and what could be in store for the former president. So the indictment was unsealed yesterday in criminal court in Manhattan. He is charged with 34 counts of felony filing uh, false documents uh, in New York business records, of New York business records. And specifically, the documents are invoices, checks, and receipts related to a $130,000 hush money payment that was paid to a woman named Stormy Daniels, someone whom Trump allegedly had a sexual relationship with and who he paid to keep quiet two weeks before the presidential election in 2016. Now, that in itself is not illegal. What makes it illegal is that the payments were not uh, registered as such in the Trump organization's accounting and books and not labeled as such uh, in the checks that were paid and also money that was then reimbursed to Trump's lawyer, uh, who made the payout. Instead, they were listed as legal fees uh, on checks, registers, and invoices, and filed as part of the Trump Organization's official records and other official records that New York State requires businesses to keep, and that is illegal. So that was the, the basic underlying offense, the filing of these false business records saying that something was legal fees and reimbursement for legal fees, when in fact it was this payout to Stormy Daniels. Um, that's only a misdemeanor crime in New York City, meaning it's a crime for which you can get up to one year in jail. It's pretty low level, even though there's 34 separate charges of that. What makes it more serious, and the reason it was charged as felony crimes, which are crimes for which you could get up to four years in jail for each count, is that the allegation from the New York District Attorney is that the payment was made to make sure that damaging information that would hurt Trump's chance of getting elected did not come out before the election. So the theory of the case is that since the money was used to influence the election, albeit in Trump's favor, that it was really a campaign contribution. It was an in-kind campaign contribution. And so if that payout was a campaign contribution, it would also have to be listed as such on campaign records and disclosed publicly, and there would also be some limits on the amount of money that could be paid. None of that was done because, as I said previously, the payment was disguised as legal fees and reimbursement for legal fees in order to cover up the nature of what Trump you know, was doing through his lawyer, Michael Cohen. So you've basically got business records crimes, uh, 34 instances of that which then get ratcheted up to more serious crimes because those initial crimes were committed in furtherance of a greater crime, which is trying to influence the election unlawfully in violation of uh, United States and New York State election law. Um, so that's the basic gist of the charges against Trump you know, at this point. How do you think this will affect him, or how likely are these charges to stick? I think out of the three cases that are being made against Trump right now by various authorities across the states, it's discussed that this is one of the weaker cases against him. How likely do you think that this will impact his 2024 run? So there are actually four cases against Trump at the moment. There's this case, the New York case. Then there's the Georgia investigation, which is an election interference case being run by the DA, Fonnie Willis in Georgia. And then there are two federal cases being run by the special prosecutor out of the Justice Department in Washington. That's the Mar-a-Lago confidential documents case, which is keeping classified documents illegally at his home in Mar-a-Lago. And then there is also the insurrection investigation, which is the, the biggest one. Trump's role in the January 6th insurrection and interfering with the lawful processes of the United States government. So there are four cases ongoing. This is the first one that's actually gotten to indictment. Um, I think you actually need to make a distinction between sort of whether something is a, a serious case and a strong case and what serious means. You know, of the four cases, this one may be the least serious because it is it doesn't involve the most direct interference with the election, um, and it doesn't involve keeping highly classified secrets of the United States. doesn't mean that it's not a serious case. I mean, the DA in New York routinely brings these business records cases against people. Um, you know, this kind of fraudulent business entry or business accounting practices 
is very serious because business records need to be maintained in a lawful and appropriate manner. But it's also serious because it was done to influence the election. So the, the, the crime itself, in and of itself, you know, may be a, a, a paperwork crime. But when it's done with the intent to actually influence an election, well, then it becomes, you know, you know as, as serious as what was, what's going on in Georgia and other allegations against Trump that he unlawfully and improperly tried to influence the election. In addition, I also think that it's a, a strong case. I mean, having read the indictment and the statement of facts, um, you know, the evidence appears to be, you know, sort of quite compelling. I mean, it's not a slam dunk. No case really is. But, you know, I think that the, the DA has laid out a, a good body of facts to support the charges, you know, against against Donald Trump. But, you know, we're going to have to wait till this case goes to trial to really to really find out. And that won't be until next year. How it's going to affect his chances of election. Nobody knows. I mean, short term, his numbers haven't moved. In fact, this probably solidifies his base and his favor because he, as he always does, he says, this is a witch hunt. It's the deep state coming to get me. It's a political you know, prosecution. Um, so in the short term, it probably bolsters his, his core base. But in the long term, um, I don't think being under criminal indictment is going to help anyone uh, win a general election because if he becomes a Republican nominee, he's going to need more than just his base to win. This is also the first time the U.S. has charged a former president with a crime. How big of a departure is this from standard operating procedure for kind of U.S. authorities? Yeah, so that's a, that's a good point, a good question. Um, this is the first time that any president, former or, you know, sitting, has ever been charged with a crime. I mean, Nixon was going to be charged with a crime, but he resigned and was pardoned by Ford. Bill Clinton was uh, also likely going to be charged with crime related to the Paula Jones and Monica Lewinsky cases when he was president. But he avoided it once he left office by entering into a plea deal, uh, you know, to avoid, avoid prosecution by giving up his law license and a few other things. There's been a bit of a convention, I think, not so much a rule, but a bit of a convention that the United States doesn't necessarily prosecute um, presidents uh, because it's uh, maybe a bad look. If you look at some failed countries around the world, you see that they will often prosecute their political enemies once they get out of power. Um, having said that, the United States certainly prosecutes lots of politicians, senators, governors, you know, mayors, and whatnot. And the president really isn't very much different. And as far as I'm concerned, whatever convention or understanding there was that we settle our differences in the ballot box and, and not in criminal court, it seems to me that the greater danger is not holding a former president to account uh, when they commit crimes. And so, you know, no matter what, what Trump and his followers would say, in my opinion, what this shows is that in a democracy, the rule of law is paramount and no one is above the law. So if this is unprecedented, it's because Trump's behavior um, has been unprecedented and this is the appropriate response. And as I said, this may be the first criminal indictment of several to come down, you know, within the coming months or year. Ron DeSantis announced that he would uh, not honor the warrant for Trump's <clears throat> arrest. How does that break with that constitutional law? Yeah, that was just that was just naked political posturing on DeSantis' point. I mean, as as somebody said, you know, <clears throat> well, who asked you to? I mean, the thing was, Trump was always going to surrender. He was never going to have an extradition fight from Florida. And DeSantis basically just said that because it's a it's a free way to you know make himself look good to Trump's to Trump's base. And it doesn't cost him anything because he would never actually have to stop the extradition because Trump was going to surrender. But to your other point, um, it is actually DeSantis's constitutional obligation uh, to provide Trump uh, for surrender because the Constitution provides that states have to extradite people to other states when they're facing criminal charges. So it would be unconstitutional for DeSantis to do that. It would also be a violation of federal and, you know, and Florida law. So really it's just posturing. Um, and it was an extremely inappropriate thing of DeSantis to say, because, again, if, you're, if, if you believe in the rule of law, having a governor of a state saying, I'm not going to follow the law um, because I think it's, you know, it's a political prosecution, it, that, that itself is politicizing the law. So it's uh, exactly the opposite of what uh, he said it was, and it was just all kind of you know, to appeal to Trump's base. Trump flew back to Florida <clears throat> after his hearing in New York. Where to from here with the case? <clears throat> so actually, at this point, things get kind of rather boring. Um, there is discovery in the case, in which means the prosecution turns over the 
evidence and the documents they have for the defense. That happens over the next two and a half months. Then there are motions filed in the case, legal motions. There'll be a motion to dismiss, a motion relating to evidence. That won't happen until August. Prosecution has several months to respond to that. And the next hearing date for the case is in December, when a lot of these legal arguments will be made, applications to dismiss, shaping of evidential presentations, etc. The prosecution asked for a trial date in January 2024. Trump's team said that was too quick. I expect this case, if it goes to trial, will go about in the middle of 2024, which is going to be right when the presidential election you know, race is, is, is really ramping up. So at this point, I think things are going to get quiet and we get into the kind of legal maneuvering phase and discovering phase of the case. But, you know, toward the end of this year and the middle of next year, you're going to see things pick up again. And as I said, the other three investigations going on about Trump may start to ratchet up in the next months or over the next year. So it's a it's a it's a very, very watch this space situation, all against the background of Trump continuing to be the leading candidate for the Republican nomination and beginning to campaign as do other, you know, as do other Republicans over the next uh, next year leading up to the 2024, you know, presidential race. That was Scott Optican on Trump's arrest. This is a sad, sad day. Um, BFM, the font of liberalism and tolerance at the <laughs> centre of the University of Auckland. The Wire. Morgan Donoghue is the spokesperson for Ours Not Mines, an organisation that is standing up against the mining company Oceania Gold and the New Zealand government over a proposed gold mine on conservation land in the Coromandel. In 2017, the Labour government promised no more mines on conservation land, yet Oceania Gold is in the process of acquiring resource consent for a gold mine under conservation land. I began by getting Morgan to explain what Oceania Gold is doing in the Coromandel and the implications of the proposed mine. They want to mine in a place called Farakiraoponga, so that's along the Karangahaki Gorge, um, just before you get to Waihi on the left-hand side, as if you were coming from Auckland. And they want to build a 6.9-kilometre tunnel uh, underground and then mine under conservation land, so that's land that's owned by every New Zealander um, for conservation efforts, and they want to mine that. They think they'll be able to get about... $1.8 billion worth of gold out of there, and they would return 2% to the Crown, so $36 million. In my mind, as someone that grew up in the Coromandel, um, I went to Coromandel Area School from when I was five years old, and, um, and you know, my mother still lives there, my father did until he passed um, at the end of last year. Um, I want to do something about that and try and stop them from mining for gold because we don't need any further gold in the world. We've got enough gold in the world to last humankind forever and the potential downsides just seem way too extreme. We've already seen this exact gold mining company um, pollute waters in the Philippines um, and and. You know, they, they can't even grow rice paddies over there anymore. The fields are just totally devastated from heavy metal leaching. Uh, they also, when the Tangata Whenua tried to protest and say they didn't want the mine, um, they had security and police come in with batons and, and hit the Tangata Whenua of that. And so it, it just seems for a whole lot of reasons that this would be a terrible, terrible thing to do. Um, so I created, with my friend David Cormack, an organisation called Ours Not Minds, um, and we've enlisted um, the help of a whole lot of friends, I guess, you know, musicians, DJs, artists, producers, um, and people that generally care and don't want to see our beautiful conservation estate destroyed by overseas gold mining companies and to give nothing back to the country um yeah so it just, just seems like way too many downsides we could see pollution in the local river we could see it spill into the pacific ocean we could see it um ruin mussel farms fishing um agriculture aquaculture the whole thing the risks just seem too extreme for no good reason and the as you say these risks are far-reaching and um fairly evident in 2017, Prime Minister Ardern promised no more mines on conservation lands, but yet here we are in 2023, and Oceania Gold um, have already been given permission by DOC to establish drill sites. How has this happened? 
Uh, yeah, it's it, it just seems like it's been tied up in a process um, where there are, there are issues at play. I think one of the issues that has come out in recent weeks is that Naitahu, um, like on the west coast, they, the, the alluvial gold mining there um, exposes Ponamu, and that is something that Naitahu are very keen to keep harvesting. And so it seems like there is a big issue on the west coast that the Crown and Naitahu need to um, sort out. It shouldn't stop a moratorium or anything else just putting a stop on gold mining on the Coromandel now and fulfilling Labour's promise um, from when they came into power. And do you feel that this is a bit of a watermark moment in terms of stopping mines on conservation land and holding the government to account so by by lobbying this one to stop and getting public support um, to then, as you say, help stop other mines around the country? Yeah, I, I really do. And, and the outpouring of support that we've had has been amazing. Um, you know, and like I was talking about, the Ours Not Minds group that we formed, obviously we're just a couple of individuals with some friends that are trying to spend the money that we raised to try and stop gold mining. So we've, we've had um, Stanley Palmer, one of New Zealand's greatest artists, come forward and donate 400 signed prints um, and we're selling those for $200 each and we're using that money to try and stop gold mining. Um, You can get that on our oursnotmines.nz store. Um, There's two different prints. They're hand signed. They're they're amazing. Um, And, you know, we're just going to keep going. It is, as you say, a watershed moment. We will not stop. We will make sure that we do everything we can to take on the billion dollar corporation and try and stop them from destroying what really is New Zealand's land it's conservation estate if it was a private individual's farm or something like that it would kind of sit slightly better but they want to do the 6.9 kilometer tunnel just to put that in context that's a third of the size of Transmission Gully you know how much of a problem Transmission Gully was to build it wasn't underground and it wasn't gold mining, it was just a road. But the size of that allows for all types of issues to happen. Um, you know, they're backfilling it all with concrete. It's full of, you know, the CO2 emissions are going to be huge if we're really trying to make New Zealand, you know, a, a, a better place to be. This is not the way to go about doing that. Well, you know, we, we should be protecting our conservation estate, not giving it away to international gold miners to... You know, take overseas to foreign people, um, foreign shareholders. And the problem that we have and you know, what we've appealed to the courts on is that we, we believe, and it will be decided by the courts, but that the way that they're going about the application, which is to apply for their... The mine has to come up above ground to have the ventilation shafts. And... What Oceana Gold have done is gone to the Hauraki District Council and applied for a licence to be on the paper road. So a paper road is purely something that's on a map that isn't actually a road, but it has to let people pass unencumbered along it. And the mining companies have put up, um, they want to put five-metre ventilation shafts up through this paper road, which would now mind to stop people from being able to walk along this road. And that's the way they're getting around having to apply to the Department of Conservation for consent by saying that they're coming up on this paper road and the Hauraki District Council um, have given them a 40-year licence for a dollar um, per year. And so we think that um, makes no sense if you really thought you had the ability to grant this licence then why wouldn't you do a commercially mined license when you already know that they're going to extract $1.8 billion? That, you know, if they you know, if they charged millions of dollars, that could go back into re- helping rebuild, you know, how Coromandel got devastated in the recent floods. Um, and it could go back to rebuilding infrastructure. But a dollar, there's no commercial sense in, in that deal. So 
um, we've appealed to the High Court for a judicial review on their decision to grant that licence. That was Morgan Donoghue on mining on conservation land. We'll be right back after a short break. You can text in on 5395 or call in on 3093879 if you have any thoughts on these pieces. We'll be, back. we'll be right back after a short break. some of your dozy mates in the media and got a fix on their job and started being reporters and journalists, not editorialists and analysts, which they're not qualified to do. Uh, Prison company accepted, of course. The Wire. Following the deaths of two infants, doctors and scientists worry that this winter could see a whooping cough epidemic unlike those seen in recent years. Helen Patousis-Harris is an Associate Professor of Primary Health at the University of Auckland, and she spoke to me about the low vaccination rates and those that are most at risk in the community. I started by asking Helen what whooping cough is. Whooping cough is a, is a disease otherwise known as pertussis that's caused by a bacteria, um, and the bacteria uh, has a toxin that causes a cough, and cough 
can go on for a long time. It has been called the, the, the 90-day cough. It can go on for three months and um, and can be very severe. So, so violent that people have been known to break ribs. You know, the, the vessels in the eyes can burst, so you get red eyes. Uh, vomiting's common because you cough, people cough to vomit. So it can be very unpleasant. And but what, for a tiny infant, it can be fatal. And why is this winter set to be a harsh one for whooping cough? Well, actually, whooping cough comes in cyclic epidemics every three to five years. And um, while we don't see the uh, burden in hospitals and uh, mortality so much anymore because of vaccines, we still see the cycle of the disease circulating. And that's because people can be protected for a while by infection or vaccine and then it wanes and they go jump back into the susceptible pool again and they can get reinfected. So an average adult might get it three to five times, uh, two or three times in their life, for example. So it's always there, hanging around. But now we've got a really large pool of people who are vulnerable in the community. So it's very, very infectious. It's going to spread fast. And who are these vulnerable people in the community? What groups are most at risk? Well, I think I think you'll have people in every age group, but the ones that are at risk of getting very sick are the very youngest infants, and these are the ones particularly too young to even have received their first vaccine. Um, we've got a really good solution for that. If a mother is pregnant, pregnant women have a a booster while they're pregnant, the antibody passes through to the baby and the baby's protected for the first few weeks of life, really, really well protected. So it's all preventable, but of course we've got a real crisis in terms of the proportion of people getting vaccinated at the moment. And why is there this crisis in vaccination rates? Is this uh, something to do with the COVID pandemic and uh, what has happened in the community with this in the last couple of years? Yeah, well, COVID has certainly had a had a, an impact, but this was something that was already occurring prior to COVID. So we've been seeing declines in immunisation coverage for two or three years prior to COVID. Uh, so that, of course, has continued um, right through the pandemic and now we're at a very sort of critical point. And what can those that are not a part of the at-risk groups do to help stop the spread this winter? I mean, everyone needs to be aware that they can uh, pick it up and transmit it. Uh, it's, it's very hard. I mean, it can be transmitted by people who are not sick. So the absolute focus has to be on pregnant women and young infants and anything that anybody can do to facilitate, to maybe give someone a ride to the to the doctor or to, to help them access these vaccines is helpful. And you spoke earlier about how uh, whooping cough comes in cycles. When was the last uh, big whooping cough epidemic in New Zealand? Well, the last cycle was prior to the pandemic, and we had a um, and the one before that was around 2010 through 2012. Um, sorry, 2000, yeah, it was about 2012, I think. So very cyclic. And if you look back over history, it's the same pattern that, that just um, repeats over and over again, three to five years. Pandemic put a sort of a bit of a, a pause on it. I think, I think it's reasonable to expect that it will, um, it will come back very quickly. Um, and I think we'll have quite a, quite a big quite a big epidemic. That was Helen Petusis-Harris on this winter's potential whooping cough epidemic. That was The Wire. Ko ira te hotaka katoa mo tēne wiki, nei te mihi ki koutou katoa, i mai ki o mo That's a wrap on the Thursday Wire. Thanks to everyone who spoke with us today. Andrew Little, Scott Optikin, Shane Henderson, Morgan Donahue, Helen Petosis Harris. Nema Hoki Timihi Kiakoto, Ifokorongo Ana. Thanks for tuning in. Blessing 95 BFM. 
That was a 95BFM podcast. Support 95BFM with a B-card. Go to 95BFM.com slash sign up.